Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor and the host of Babbage, On today's show, the impact of continuous head trauma in sports. And a new study that suggests social media is not so bad after all. With me today to discuss these topics are Natasha Loader, our healthcare correspondent, and Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. Natasha, let's start with you. Concussion in sports. Brain scans of the late American footballer Fred McNeil have again sparked a debate over the impact of continuous head trauma. What have the scans shown? Well, Fred McNeil was an American footballer who, during his life, was tentatively diagnosed with something called CTE, which is a sort of better known as punch drunk syndrome or a sort of neurological, degenerative neurological condition. When he died, uh, well, pathologists were able to look inside his brain and kind of confirm that diagnosis. And this was kind of a watershed moment because... Prior to his death, CTE had only been found, this neurological condition had only been uh, identified in the brains of dead players, dead former players and a few uh, military veterans. You know, what you see inside the brain um, is these very characteristic deposits of a protein called tau, which is better known as one of the two proteins that besets people who suffer from Alzheimer's. So now that the doctors are able to diagnose this condition in living uh, patients using a form of uh, positron emission tomography, it seems likely that we're going to be able to get to sort of understand this condition and those that are related to it a lot better. But also it's raising a, a lot of concerns about the sort of damage that athletes are receiving while they're playing contact sports. Okay, so now we have a better way of identifying that there's a problem. How big a problem is it? Well, this is a really good question because we're only recognising um, this CTE, but it seems that there are a lot of other forms of damage happening from concussive incidents and even subconcussions, and that is um, impacts to the head that don't actually cause a concussion. And we don't really have a good handle on how all the other sort of what they would call neurological sequelae, all the other consequences sort of tie in together. So we don't really know how big a problem it is. What we do know is that in any one concussion, whether you're an adult or child, some people, maybe about one in five, suffer much more serious consequences than other people. We don't know who they are or why yet. And they also potentially suffer more long-term consequences as well and need to be kept out of the sport for longer. So if you suffer a concussion, you need to take a break. But for some people, that break, because you don't want to have another concussion because that would be kind of awful, they'll need to spend longer away from the pitch. Jason? Um, Well, you say that some people are disproportionately affected and some people need more recovery time and so on. How 
how do we figure out which those people are? Are there genetic tests? Are there physiological tests? That is a really great question. And this is something that scientists are really actively engaged in looking at right now. What we're hoping to find is some kind of chemical signal in the blood or the urine that will tell us that a concussion has happened and that the uh, damage is ongoing and that, that the person hasn't recovered. Now, there's good reasons to think that that might be possible. And one of the, the reasons is that we've started to sort of recognise that when concussions happen, there's a sort of chemical signature in the brain and potentially in the blood as well. So what happens during a concussion is this. Imagine you have a bottle with some water in it and the bottle stops and the liquid inside sloshes around backwards and forwards. And it's that kind of movement that causes a concussion, not the kind of actual trauma to the head that might come from a, a direct hit. And it's this concussion was previously thought was just a temporary sort of problem. But in actual fact, there's an injury going on and axons are being stretched. These are the sort of thread-like bits of the nerve cell. And when these axons are stretched, a sort of spray of chemicals comes out, that tau protein that I mentioned before, but a whole bunch of other things as well. And one of the proteins that comes out also leaks into the blood. And that's, that's something that people hope that they may be able to pick up. Now that we can identify that it is a more common problem than we thought before, what are we going to do about it? Well, this is a really good question. And the first thing we really ought to do is consider whether children should be playing uh, contact sports, uh, where there is really a high risk of concussive events. Uh, and these are going to be American football, rugby, and actually ice hockey as well. And if you look at the kind of number of collisions that uh, particularly children are getting in these sports, one really has to kind of question whether they're actually safe. And in Britain, there are calls by a whole bunch of doctors now to government ministers uh, to really consider whether uh, tackling in rugby uh, needs to be taken out of the game for children of school age. Natasha, isn't it a bit obvious that if you have kids bashing their heads against each other in sports, that of course it was going to create problems. Are the injuries worse than they were in the past or are we just a little bit more sensitive to these issues? I think what we're realising now is that there are long-term consequences of concussions. And although it may seem obvious, people really did think that a concussion was just a sort of temporary confusion of the brain, a temporary problem, and that essentially the brain just recovered. Whereas now we're seeing that it is actual physical damage, like a torn hamstring or some other part of the body that's easier to see. And so it really was an invisible injury. And, you know, the technology is not only allowing us to sort of see inside the brains of people who've been damaged this ways. It's also starting to allow us to kind of monitor the sort of ongoing brain health of people, whether you're doing brain training games on apps or whatever this is. And all these things are kind of making the sort of consequences of playing sport, dangerous, risky sports and getting a concussion much more visible. Thank you very much, Natasha. Moving on to you now, Jason, you're writing about a huge anthropological study on social media. The study challenges the commonly held assumption that social media is responsible for growing narcissism. What's it all about? This project called Why We Post um, is pretty much the, the biggest, most ambitious project of its sort. Um, and it saw nine anthropologists go to nine different sites around the world um, and be kind of embedded within families and within communities for, for 15 months. And this has resulted in 11, count them, 11 books, nine, uh, one each from, from the nine sites and a kind of an up-sum book uh, and, and one that's specifically about the visual nature of social media. But the... 
the most important thing about it is that kind of fly-on-the-wall perspective that they get. These assumptions that we talk about in the social media are bad and making us narcissistic and, and shortening our attention spans and so on. All of this is the kind of, you know, Sunday magazine hand-wringing that we're all familiar with and so on, but it's based in large part on kind of what you see from the outside. We look at the public posts on Twitter and on Facebook and so on. Going to where people do their business and seeing what their cultural motivations are and so on is an entirely different perspective. And there's there's quite a lot in here that, that might surprise you. So what have they found? Well, 11 books worth of stuff, so we're going to have to limit it a bit. I mean, a lot of it is, is sort of studies and contrasts, right? So take take the selfie. The accusation there is that it's making people very you know self-regarding and to worry too much about looks and so on. It depends where you see this done. For instance, in, in England, there is a, a subcategory of the selfie called the ugly, where the point is to take as unflattering a picture as you possibly can of yourself. This doesn't really line up with the whole look how beautiful I am argument. Uh, whereas in Chile, there's an entirely separate sort of subcategory called footies, where the point is to take a picture of your feet when they're propped up, most often in front of the TV, just showing that you are relaxing. That can't, unless you have particularly beautiful feet, be a whole lot about looks. So there are lots and lots and lots of these kinds of examples where the upshot is people do things differently in different places and so on. But it does challenge this, this idea of social media are one thing, kind of serve one purpose for everyone everywhere. You know, I find social media to be such a drag to think that there's a, there's 11 books about social media. Well, I mean, each one of them, of course, is, is a local anthropological study in its own right. The, the more valuable one to talk about is the sort of the upsum book, the sort of summary of, of what they see there. And it's called, very deliberately, the, the juxtaposition in the title is How the World Changed Social Media. Uh, so let's hear about it. How has the world changed social media? This is, again, unpicking the idea that social media is one thing. You go to different places and you see different things, even within single countries, right? Two of the sites were within China, in a, an industrial region and a rural region, and the behaviors there were entirely different. One of the problems here is this sort of persistent assumption that social media and new technologies, new communications technologies and what have you, start off among early adopters um, in urban areas and so on, and eventually it trickles out you know, into, into the shires where where the sort of established habits and, and protocols and so on stay the same. That's really not true at all. These things sort of spread everywhere and are used you know, in very different ways locally. That's one of the biggest things I think that this, this whole study kind of undoes. Let me ask about narcissism because it does seem to me that people maybe are not more narcissistic because of social media, but they're certainly able to express their narcissism more efficiently through social media. How have the study authors fallen on that topic? The answer is going to be largely the same in the sense that different sort of cultural contexts drive different behaviors, right? So absolutely the authors did see, for instance, uh, Italian girls taking dozens of pictures and perhaps, you know, changing outfits and makeup and so on between them and then choosing the one that they should post. This is kind of your sort of encapsulated normal narcissistic argument. Brazilian men overwhelmingly take their selfies in the gym, for instance. So, so there is a lot of that. But in other places, people are less inclined to post pictures of themselves or indeed of, of themselves with their friends and so on because they think that that leads to, to gossiping and so on. So in Turkey, that was certainly the case. That's interesting. So in fact, in some ways, there is no one social media that it changes depending on where it goes. The kind of the take-home message that, that I get from this is kind of, you know, thinking about communication technologies down the ages. They are what we make of them, not necessarily what, what they make of us, right? So it is what it is in each place, driven by sort of how people want that to fit into an existing culture, an existing life, existing activities and so on. Well, McLuhan said, you know, man makes tools and then tools make the man. And so if we were to extrapolate that, extend that to social media, the presumption is that we would create social media and then we're all going to be changed by it. But his presumption might be maybe it's just a Western approach. He was very Western dominated, is that it's going to be the same everywhere, that 
whether it's the printing press or the telephone, these are little like things that are sort of like molds and they press upon the human psyche and they press the same way, the same thing down. But what the, it seems to me the authors of the study are showing is that social media is a lot more fungible, that it moves into an environment and it gets changed by the people who are in that environment. And that seems to me a little bit different than the McLuhan argument. I think that's right. Um, and, you know, you do have to take a big, broad look at these things, um, perhaps, dare I say, more than McLuhan did to, to get this view. You mentioned the, the telephone in that argument, and in fact, so do the authors of the study here. You, you know, there was a time when you might have thought of the telephone as a sort of a separate arena, right, a separate thing. Uh, dare I use the phrase a virtual world and so on. Now, we don't think of it that way. It's just a tool, if you like, that's been added to our arsenal of, of communications. Social media, no different in that regard. Natasha? Uh, yeah, I have a question. Did the study tell us anything about how um, sort of children who've grown up around social media may uh, respond differently or use it differently to sort of parents who've kind of just discovered how to send a tweet or something like that? Well, it's not kind of a, a longitudinal study. So 15 months is a long time as far as studies go, but it is just kind of one slice of time, if you like. But you can certainly see the, the differences in behavior within individual cultures, right? So uh, in southeastern Turkey, for instance, there was a lot of talk about how the kids, uh, how young boys and girls are in absolutely constant contact with one another in full sight of their parents in a way that they would never be allowed to converse uh, in, in person and so on. And, you know, the parents sort of take this on board. So as far as uh, generational differences in how they're used, no, but generational differences in how they're perceived, absolutely yes. Great. Thank you very much, Jason. You bet. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you. That's all for Babbage. Remember, if you want to join the conversation, you can tweet us at EconSciTech, or you can tweet me directly at KN Kukie. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.